0: Western Universalism. Democracy is a product of Western Universalism. Oh, we have been questioning Western Universalism for a very long time, but democracy seems to have become the same kind of hand down that the other Western values are. So we go deep into this discussion. Mm -hmm the Western universal values, democracy, and all that comes with democracy, all those things. And we have Richard Sharma and Vibhuti Jha today. So let's go in after you subscribe. Right? Namaste. Namaste. Namaste, everyone, and welcome, Richard and Vibhutiji. So, how how you been doing, Richard? I'm very how well. You, uh, <laughs> away, away for a long time doing some on the ground research? Oh, uh, well, policy work, but uh, rewarding. Okay, that's very nice. That's
1: the question is rewarding for who? For <laughs> <laughs> all involved, ideally. For the Colonials or the Colonialists?
0: <laughs> Richard, uh, my desk is asking whether you can put on the headphone. Your voice is echoing a lot. Sure. I can do that. Uh, but, we are on that old question. I think that we have discussed but we've got in Richard this time. Uh, he should be able to give us uh, more valuable insight. And uh, Uh, We talk about the globe having become one and uh, the price that we pay for the globe having become one is to become subservient to what is universally hailed these days as uh, Western Universalism. So uh, I think uh, I'll go to Richard first. So this uh, Western Universalism, What do you make of it, Richard? No, 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 no audio. Can't get your audio. No. No. Uh, Okay, so uh, uh, let's wait for Richard to get his audio right. eh? You can take up this question.
1: Richard, is your audio right now? Can you hear me now? Yes, 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 yes. Okay,
0: please, please.
2: Richard. This universalized tendency is something that's seen with various cultural experiences, that everyone likes to think that their culture is the norm.
0: Uh, I think let's go back to the e code volume because this is not a lot of disturbance coming. So I think we will manage with the e code what to do. All right, is
2: that better? Yes. Yeah. Uh, in terms of volume. Great. So uh, from ancient times, there have been various cultures or civilizations who saw themselves as the center of the region or of the world, and uh, hence the norm setters against whom everyone else was compared. This could be the Middle Kingdom syndrome in China, where they said all Chinese people within the Sinosphere, you're civilized, and everyone else is a barbarian, and it is their job to lift themselves up to Confucian values, and then they'll be accepted as a civilized race or a civilized country. Now that is the same pattern that one sees today with uh, with the West as a whole and in particular the Anglosphere who see themselves as the creators and custodians of a certain set of values. So they call them enlightenment values, they call them uh, Judeo-Christian values, they call them European values, they call them Protestant values and work ethic. Uh, There's various labels but uh, what's common to them is a feeling that this is the pinnacle of human thought, philosophy, civilization. And those who do not conform to these values are inherently inferior. Perhaps they can be coached or incentivized or punished into uh, adopting these values, but until they are, they are inferior. And it's a very convenient stick with which to beat other cultures. Because this way you can continue your colonial era economic relations with supposedly inferior cultures and countries, without the the moral dilemma of what what if we are the bad guys? Because you're spreading good things, you're spreading democracies, uh, spreading human rights, you're spreading Enlightenment values. How can we be the bad guys if we're spreading all of these to these ignorant savages? No different to how in the 1800s they used to justify colonialism. But change the messaging a little bit to make it more acceptable to their themselves and to their public.
0: Yes, uh, uh, we talk about, uh, the Western values of, uh, freedom, liberty, democracy, and what have you, but, uh, underneath that, if you trace it back uh, to what he Mentioned what Richard mentioned as the Enlightenment value, which were essentially Judeo Christian values and also set in that same time concept and logic concept. We find that alongside uh, the same liberation and freedom, there was that uh, Canolian mindset which was born out of the Christian theology, essentially racist and. while being racist also being a religiously discriminatory discrimination on the basis of religion as well treating non-christians as inferior by way of belief in fact it was for the first time that india saw discrimination on the basis of belief and uh, in spite of that, those Western values were hailed as superior and not just hailed as superior. They find that uh, the decolonized world actually simply embraced them. So what an irony.
1: Well, it is, it is, it is indeed an irony. And irony is also because of the fact that when you say that they hailed their values, they felt it that way, they hailed it. The fault lies with us that we gave into that. What prevents us from hailing our own Sanatan principles? Nothing. But we give in. You know, to answer the question, the Indian democratic model is flawed based on Westminster model is obvious. It is not a fit for India in every sense of the term, because that model was developed for them, for themselves to suit their purposes, cultural, sociological, psychological, anthropological. It was totally unsuited for India. When they talked about and they hailed their freedom, we didn't tell them that we are already free to pray or not to pray or who to pray and how to pray. We did not. I, in this connection, I want to bring about a certain amount of you know, you know know uh, humor in it. I just now tweeted, actually, Trevor Noah, who is a comedian, who comments on a comedy show. I tweeted that thing today, how British conquered India. So There were these colonialists who came to India, and he told them that we are here by ordained by God. So the Indian asked in Indian accent, who is queen and who is God? So the, the colonial tells that we don't know who God is. So the Indian asks, what is the name of your God? the british says i don't know what's the name of the god so the indian says if you don't know the name of your god how can you be how can your queen be ordained by him by who <laughs> so this dialogue goes on and then they talk about imposing the colonial mindset and the end of the thing i would urge you, it's a 5 minute thing watch it at the after the end of the show in which the british fires the gun and the indian says okay you want to rule rule <laughs> So it's a very important, thoughtful scenario here. So the Westminster model is not suited for us for all the variety of reasons which Ruchir talked about, suitability talked about, and we easily gave in to them without standing up for our own self. And that's the flaw that lies. Think about it, you know, which are Vimash, and we can do the analysis of all the causes in the past. Let's take it to a new conversation today. What we do here most of the time is to make people think that how is it, how is it that the British model, I mean, let me also say one thing, take a quick diversion. I'm here to celebrate today on behalf of every Hindu and myself, that Suhatra Putri became a Hindu in Indonesia. I think in,
0: Sukarnoputri, not Sukarnoputri.
1: Sorry. Sukarnoputri embraced and returned. She did an authentic gharwapsi, right? We are, where is celebration in India on that? There uh, has
0: well, to be. Deppor dialogue yeah. celebrated it.
1: That's right. I know. I mean, I'm talking about India as a whole. You know, that has to be. Prime Minister should be, government of India should be congratulating. It's not death of Islam. It is the uprising of Hinduism. We have talked about it here too many times. The time for Sanatan principles to arise is now. We, are, we must get rid of our colonial mindset where the colonial people came, told us and we gave in. We never made a stand. So I'm taking the discussion forward from here. I'm not going to fall back into the history in analysis, both Hogi analysis. Where where we are coming from is no longer relevant. Where we are heading out to is important. And that's what I say is that no country in the world is more tolerating or accepting of any anyone, any faith, any religion, than we are. We are home to every persecuted religion in the world. Yet, isn't it ironical and sad that we are accused? of being vicious with minorities. How bizarre is that? Why are we not able to stand up and say that these targeted killings of Hindus in Muslim countries and others are wrong? Why is it that we are having to define ourselves while the Islamist people led by a US Congresswoman is talking about ban on global Islamophobia, which means bringing about global blasphemy laws That you can't question you can't make inquiries we have to think about in those fashions yes democratic model of the western democracy is not fit for us because we are far beyond that in sense of acceptance living together and everything else that is there so i would put it this way in one sentence let's reject it let's make a stand if barbados or one of the countries in in the caribbean denounced that got over our link with the queen is over what's holding us back that's the point which i'm trying to say is to make it relevant to today's conversation is that we are under attack stalin Vijayan, jagan mamta Arvind, Chadni. we are getting surrounded by people and faiths who are inimical to our interests because they know they fear us they fear us because our values are authentic and genuine and most relevant in today's world. And the world, with the help of our, with our ally, is science and technology. Like Swami Chivin Sinwayananji told somebody, Hinduism is Sanatan because it is always evolving. We are not driven by a couple
0: of couplets of a book. Uh, okay. I put the same question to... Richard, slightly differently. Uh, We know what the Western universalism or the universal values are. And uh, they seem to have operated very differently for the West and very differently for the colonized people. So what is it that prevents us from taking cognizance of that and evolving our own models?
2: So unfortunately, a lot of people don't realize that that much of this uh, cultural imperialism is simply a tactic by which hegemonic powers, so superpowers or colonial powers, seek to preserve their power. And this is something that has affected Indian society for a long time. Uh, as you know, far back as 120 years ago, you had uh, people like Sri Aurobindo talking about this and uh, mentioning how. To some people, they actually began to believe these colonial narratives, that, oh, what a gift British rule has been to us. They have given us uh, this modern form of administration. Thanks to them, we have this bureaucracy that keeps the country together. Uh, And uh, this is something that I have a nice uh, quote on hand uh, from him. He said that, uh, in this country, there is a class of wise men who regard the rule of the British bureaucracy as a dispensation of providence, not only to create (laughs) unity, but to preserve it. They therefore preach a gospel of faith in the foreigner, distrust of our countrymen, and acquiescence in alien rule as a godsend from on high and an indispensable condition for peace and prosperity. Even those whose hearts rebel against a doctrine so servile are intellectually so much dominated by it that they cannot embrace nationalism with their whole heart and try to arrive at a compromise between subjection and independence, a halfway house between life and death. So this was Fiorebindo writing in 1907. Now, let's say, you know, 40 years later, we got independence. at least a power transfer from the British Raj to the Dominion of India. Uh, Three years later, our constitution came into force, became a republic. Within one generation of that uh, independence, you had people still frustrated that why is this new state not delivering us the Ram Rajya that we were promised? Why are we still starving? Why do people still live without dignity, without sovereignty? And uh, at this point, you had uh, Uh, a great book by uh, the scholar Dharampal, uh, who wrote The Beautiful Tree, and uh, the book that he wrote uh, in the early 70s was Civil Disobedience and the Indian Tradition, where he talks about this love for freedom at the grassroots within Indian society, from ancient times to medieval times, how there was a tradition of resistance against oppressive and tyrannical rule. And in the foreword to this book, uh, which was uh, published and uh, uh, by under the patronage of Jabrikash Narayan. Uh, jp says whether it was to assert the dignity of the state or for the maintenance of public trans- tranquility or upholding those sentiments of respect which appeared so essential that the community t- should entertain the public authority the traditional right of the p- of the people of peaceful resistance had to be given no quarter by the British. The reason Sri Dharampal gives, with which I am in agreement, is the feeling that the British rulers had of extreme insecurity. They could not feel safe until they had beaten the people into a state of unquestioning obedience. The ultimate sanction they relied upon to achieve this was military force. Thus was brought about the spiritual death of the people of this country. So if you look at all of our modern institutions, the ones that were supposedly uh, supposed to look up to as the guardians of our republic and of our democracy, they were all designed in British times to degrade and demoralize the common people so they, they could no longer dream of taking power for themselves or demanding their rights be delivered to them. In ancient times, there was a social contract in India. It was the Raja Praja model, but still, that the, uh, the king had a duty towards his subjects to deliver them rights, to deliver them peace, to deliver them justice, to deliver them victory. If you, as a subject, were denied your rights, you would appeal to the king to uh, rectify that. Now, that relationship has been broken because this non-indigenous state, which has been imposed from above, not organically, not with the consent of the people, is designed to break the spirit of Designed to ensure that they don't uh, demand that their rights be delivered to them, that justice be delivered to them. So, if you look at all of these institutions—the uh, Indian police, the Indian courts, the Indian education system—when did they when did they, uh, when did they uh, be, get created? They were created within four years of 1857, after the uh, uh, native uprising, as people from across the country of different backgrounds, for different reasons, all rose up against British rule, against Company Raj. Once that attempted war of free independence was crushed by the British, they transferred their, the administration of their colonial possessions from the East India Company to the British Crown. And the lesson they learned was, we should never allow a situation in which The common people can rise up, outnumber us, and inflict pain, inflict violence on us. It's our job as the superior race to beat them into life. And that is the origin of our court system, of our police system, of our education system. It was all created in that period of transition to the British Raj in order to create a passive and submissive uh, native
0: uh, uh native population. Yes, quite right. And uh, if you go even to the, I just uh, pose a supplementary to this, even at a fundamental level it doesn't work out because as you said the king had a duty towards the public, Raja had a duty towards the Praja and even if you read the Chanakya Sutra uh, it very clearly says that the legitimacy of uh, the king actually comes from the Praja, that Praja is the ultimate legitimizer of the rule of the king. And uh, this is many thousands years ago. And uh, we have also seen all through the uh, rules of the princes, even during the British times, that uh, the public uh, in the princely states Uh, was much better off uh, than the people who were directly ruled by the British in every sense. And and you know that the most, uh, the HR index was uh, the best uh, in the princely states and uh, and not among the British provinces at the time of independence. And you have the record for that. Uh, The best one of them, the the, the Travancore, uh, what is called the, Mysore state, Baloda state, the Holkar state. They were compared to the British provinces, directly ruled British provinces, were sometimes uh, six to seven times better off. The uh, incidence of taxes was always uh, a light uh, whenever you had indigenous rule. And when you talk about this dharma, because, uh, raja also had a dharma the praja also had a dharma and the entire system in the all relationship the relationships within the indian system were based on duties towards each other and rights were conferred to them in order to perform their duties and in the western system if you look at their system the rights are actually the original rights are the divine rights and all other rights flow from them in order to fulfill the divine rights you get the other rights and uh, then of course after the intelligent values uh, you superficially you say that they promoted liberty freedom uh, individual rights and all that but if they were universal values why would they not apply to the colonized? Simply because those values basically flew. Those values were actually to fulfill the divine right first of the church, or rather church as the agent of God, then the king as the agent of God, and then the state as the agent of God. Richard, that was a supplement to his. There's
2: a, there's a completely different understanding of where rights come from, where duties come from in Eastern civilizations, in uh, you know, in India, in China, in Japan, uh, or even in a country like Greece, which straddles traditionally in the past straddled both East and West. It's neither fully Western nor fully uh, Eastern, uh, as compared to what we now call Western values, what are essentially uh, Protestant Reformation values. <laughs> and uh, it's it's very amusing to see how they claim that oh, these uh, Enlightenment values and Western values and Judeo-Christian values uh, are universal. They weren't even applied universally by them for most of their history. That Did Judeo-Christian principles not apply when you were enslaving people in in Africa and transporting them to uh, the new world, to the Americas, did they not apply when uh, uh, Columbus and uh, the conquistadors went to uh, what's now Latin America and raped and enslaved uh, the locals uh, uh, for the glory of Christ? That's also your Judeo-Christian values. Uh, 70 years ago you were rounding up uh, uh, Jewish people, Roma people, homosexuals and uh, sending them to death camps in, uh, in the heart of Europe? Uh, was that not an, an expression of these values? If so, then you need to disown these values and create something new and positive, not claim that, oh, uh, because a certain side won a couple of wars, that means their values are superior, or if a certain country is rich today, that means its values are superior. The values that it showed during its rise, are very different to the ones that it expects of others. I would argue that these values are not even applied today within their countries. It's just weaponized in order to keep other countries in line. Is uh, the US fully democratic? No, you know, we've seen that with various uh, obstacles to to voting, with uh, various uh, gerrymandering, which uh, creates constituencies based on the whims of uh, uh, the parties in power, with uh, uh, the uh, extension of equal rights to all take, only taking place in the 60s. So it's, uh, it's very funny when countries that were not fully democratic until a couple of decades ago now act as the custodians of democracy or uh, human rights for that matter. Now, on the other hand, within, within India, we have had an organic uh, tradition of grassroots understanding of political philosophy from ancient times, and it's not uh, set in stone. That uh, this is something that evolves with the times. That, uh, uh, again, as uh, Sri Aurobindo said, the one principle permanent at the base of construction throughout all the building and extension and rebuilding of the Indian polity was the principle of an organically self-determining communal life. Self-determining not only in the mass and by means of the machinery of the vote and the representative body erected on the surface, representative only of the political mind of a part of a nation, which is all that the modern system has been able to manage, but in every pulse of its life and in each separate member of its existence. The test of the Indian genius for socio-political construction, lay in the successful application of its principle of a communal self-determined freedom and order to suit this growing development and new order of circumstances. So in the past, there's a rich tradition in India of monarchies, of empires, of noble republics, of Janhpads, of Ganasanghas from ancient times. And even in more recent times, at the village level, there was still village democracy until it was dismantled by foreign rule. That At the ground level, at the grassroots, people didn't have to interact with the central government. Uh, there was always some form of local organic political organization. And unfortunately, our post-independence polity did not recognize that until the early 90s when we had the Panchayati Raj Act passed to formalize Gram Panchayats and parishads. Now, this is something, this is a reform that needs to be taken forward. That a true democracy is one which represents and reflects the values of its citizens, not one that tries to degrade them or demoralize them or try to civilize them and force them to adapt to some principles that some founding fathers have deemed sacred. And this is, unfortunately, a symptom of the Americanization of of, uh, elite Indian culture, where people start calling uh, uh, our, let's say, first generation of post-independence leaders the founding fathers of India, and they act like the Constitution is a holy book. Uh, The Constitution is not an original document. Most of it is taken from the Government of India Act, 1935, which was an act of British Parliament with some features uh, borrowed from various other uh, countries, so from the US or from Australia. uh, There were some proposals to borrow provisions from Ireland and and Switzerland, more democratic ones such as proportional representation or uh, referenda, and these were shot down because these supposedly all-knowing and wise founding fathers said that, oh, Indians are too stupid, they're too illiterate to understand these things, Why should we give them power to have a referenda, to have local self-government? They they don't deserve it. Uh, That's something that advanced countries, that Western countries deserve. But that's a historically illiterate position that uh, it didn't matter that these countries were among the poorest in Europe, but uh, uh, during the 19th century, they still organized themselves into a polity that reflected their people and their values. Because the state exists to be a vehicle for the aspirations of the people, not the other way around. The state doesn't exist to uh, beat the people into being better citizens. Whether the citizens are good or bad, the state should reflect that. Whether you like the values of the people or not, doesn't matter. Their values should be reflected in the state. <inaudible>
0: I think he said something very, very important right at the end, that whether people are good or bad, their value should be reflected. (laughs) So I urge you to give your take. You know, the
1: greatest threat to our dharma is the belief that someone else will protect it. In the process, we forgot our own responsibility to preserve our religion and culture values and everything else. And Ruchir has elaborated on it uh, very well that how the colonial mindset made us who we are, regardless of the fact that we had all the values that the world today seeks to bring about, So think about it from that perspective. And, you know, I'm, today I'm going to urge all the viewers today uh, to read three, three elements, three items that I'm trying to share with you. And Ruchin has already talked about Sri Aurobindo a lot and, you know, You cannot help but marvel at the mind and the thoughts of Sri Aurobindo in his famous 1907 article, The Bourgeois and the Samurai. I urge each one of you today watching this, please read that. And at the end of the very first paragraph, Sri Aurobindo says the solution to the problems of this kind, and it's relevant today. That's my word. The solution to the problems of this kind has to be sought in abstraction, not machinery, but in men. It is the spirit in man which molds his fate. It is the spirit of the nation which determines its history. We forgot that. We had each one of us here looking at a leader to solve our problems. And nobody is stepping forward. We forgot our individual role. So to that end, I will also urge everybody to please read Sri Aurobindo's India's India Reborn. You know that India's rebirth. What a beautiful book it is. And as you read, you realize that where we missed out everything that he was talking about and he was calling upon to 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 revive in us. And the third book which I want to everybody to consider is a modern book, Israel's story, in the start of nation. That's not about its economic miracle but the spirit of Israel that I loved in the book. Everything that happened, that has happened in Israel, whether developing water from, you know, developing the entire desalinization program or designing or coming up with how to prevent blood clot in the event of a war or something like that. They have come up because of the spirit of the nation. Every single individual. That's the point which I'm trying to urge everybody here today is to read, acquire the knowledge and move with your action. Your, our, even your, Richard is right. Isn't it the famous sentence? Uh, they say that in democracy, you get the government that you deserve. It is called the reflection of the people. So that's what is important that we have to become better than what we are. Merely crying and wailing ki humko usne ye kar diya, is not the solution to the problem. So we have, for for instance, today's India is being besieged. The people know that Why don't you arise and fight? Make those 10 people curse the day they took the decision to attack you. It is about making a stand and saying this far and no further. Our own teaching of Lakshman Rekha applies all over the place in India right now. We have to draw the line. There is nobody else is going to draw the line for us. We are going to be toyed around if we allow ourselves to be toyed around. That is the absolutely hardcore geopolitical reality. Define it in any which way we get imposed. So think about it. We have talked about that you know? Western thought, Western thing. They hailed it. They brought it on. I had one experience of a PSU chairman when I was sitting with him. He asked me, can you bring the best practices of industrial relations and personal policy from all over the world? To, so that we can implement it here. And I said to him, we have our own ethos and our own cultural values. Why don't we teach the world our values? Why don't we develop our own IR policy and personal policy to suit our requirements? Why are we wearing a suit and tie? Because in our climatic condition, it's a totally misfit thing. But we we imbibe that. So suit and you know, suit. You know. This is the mindset we have to get out of. I admire the South Indians in this regard. They wear their juba. They, they, they have not abandoned their juba, but we have given up our dhoti kurta, which was our original thing. The point of the matter is I'm not saying that don't evolve. Something's changed with the process of time. I'm perfectly for that. But what I'm saying is that you can do that without dropping our values, abandoning our values and indiscriminately accepting what the Western theology is all about. And that is what annoys me. Whereas the West today wants to know about us. We are not in a position to tell them who we are and what we are. And But I'm very happy to also share. Change is happening. You know, I, I'm, I'm telling you. Here is one important part. Reservation policy. Uh, two weeks ago, a school teacher from India was telling me that he is going to drum up money, $36,000 for a state university. A study for his son who got admitted there. He's one of those 55,000 children who will be coming to study here. He's a space scientist. He did not get admission in India, despite having 85% plus marks, because his seat went to somebody who was 40%. Here, look at the irony of it. The United States will be the beneficiary of a brighter mind at 85% marks in the space technology and he will be forever grateful to us for giving him that opportunity. And us will benefit from the Indian mind that is coming here. Whereas India will have to live with a below average 40% student who will be the space mind of India. Think about it like this. Who is a winner? Who is a loser? If the political leadership and the social leadership and the, and the and society doesn't recognize this element, It's not the brain drain, it is a loss. The brain can go back, but for the moment, that young boy whose parents are going to, you know, give $36,000 worth of money for him to study here, do you think he will ever be loyal to India? Because he in his deep mind will always say, India denied me the opportunity and the West has given me the opportunity. We sold our assets at a deep discount, at a very high cost. This is what I want to say is that, you know, we have to begin to embrace the reality that we cannot lose our talent. But That's a different matter. Intellectual transportation has always happened. Intellectual migration always happens. But I'm talking about at a root level of it. If 55,000 Indian students Who have come here this year that alone is a group of people who secured 85, 90% of the marks and didn't get admission in their own home. Think about it. That's a very serious issue. So colonization of the mind happens in direct and indirect ways. And this is one such example.
0: Okay. Last point for the day. The democratic model that India is following. It seems to have bred into Indians, especially the Indian leaders, some kind of a deep inferiority complex that afflicts them so much that they're apologetic for everything, even for the crimes that are inflicted on them. They apologize to the people who inflict them. The situation is that kind of a pass. So, uh, is it because of uh, an inherently flawed model, or is it due to an inherently flawed working of that model?
2: So, it's uh, a bit of both. This uh, is a reflection of the state institutions. It's not uh, by accident that our elites think this way or function this way. This is what they're incentivized to do. This is what they expected to do. The entire education system, the entire judiciary, police, uh, and Westminster democracy model in India is an elite reproduction model that you want to generate as you know many brown Englishmen as you can, so that they can continue the management of these institutions that were inherited at uh, the time of independence. Now you know. It, This brings me to another quote by JP Narayan from 1971. He talked exactly about this, that during the British period, the needs of imperious uh, rule dictated that Indians be pictured as an inferior people in respect to material, moral, and intellectual accomplishments. This deliberate denigration of the Indian nation was furthered by the incapacity of the foreigner to understand properly a civilization so different from his own. So in course of time, as our political subjugation became complete, we happened to accept as real the distorted image of ourselves that we saw reflected in the mirror that the British held to us. After the first few years of euphoria since independence, a period of self-denigration set in during which educated Indians, particularly those educated in the West, took the lead. Now, whether in the name of modernization, science or technology, they ran down most, if not all things Indian. And we are not yet out of this period. Now, this is symptomatic. So this is not a natural behavior. This is a learned behavior, that people go into the machine uh, being proud of their culture, proud of their nation, proud of their family and their community. and they come out at the other end, uh, saying that oh no, no, everything Indian is bad. And we need if only we acted more like the West, one day we could be rich like them, uh, which is a trap. It's a development trap, It's a cultural trap because there's no circumstance in which a former colony and a one populated by non-white people, will be accepted on the terms of equality by hegemonic powers. Their entire social and economic capital that they've accumulated today, their position in the world, is dependent on keeping other countries poor and chaotic. Otherwise, they don't have a lot of mineral wealth. They don't have any oil. They don't have uh, even much of a manufacturing sector. Mostly, they're service-based economies. And what do they service? They supervise international trade they supervise international relations and any change in that will be resisted by them so they use all of these tactics and now it's up to us to resist that to recognize this and to resist it and demand more of our state that it's not enough that the state simply lets us survive or that the state has survived since independence it should be allowing us to thrive. The state should thrive. The citizens should thrive because the state and the citizens should be one. There should be no, uh, there should be no differentiation between the two. The state should see itself in the citizens, and the citizens should see themselves in the state. And now the challenge for us is, over the next decades of the Indian Republic, where do we want our state to take us? Do we want it to just be the status quoist? Patronage-based state that uses government expenditure and government employment as a way to mollify the people to keep them, you know, just fed enough that they don't rebel, or do we want it to be a vehicle towards a larger shared unifying goal? That in 2100 we want India to be in a certain position economically, socially, geopolitically, and the state is the vehicle which will take you there. Now, we need to shape the state into a vehicle, into a platform for achieving our goals, not this UFO that hovers above us and that we look up to and are scared of, that we're scared to go to the police station, that we're scared to go to a court, we're scared to interact with the bureaucrat because you know that they have all the power.
0: Okay. So, Teji, last word to you. Where do we want to go, as per the two paths shown by Ruchel?
1: You know, these are things which are very, very endemic when you are besieged with the colonial mindset. When you look up to government for every solution, whereas we forgot that we had a Panchayati Raj and gram Panchayat. But there used to be, if I memory correct is correct, then there used to be a minister for Panchayati Raj earlier on. Now there is no such ministry at all. So we have uh, we have allowed no, our ministry, is there. It, ministry, huh? Good, good to, good to know. Good to know. Good to know that it's still there. But functional kitna hai, you know, that's what is important. So you know, it's going back to the thing, it's important for us. We have to regain our roots, and for that. We have to go back to our basics of Bhagavad Gita. Aapko to Bhagavad Gita pura yaad hai, Sanjay ji. Shayad aap chapter 18 ka shloka jo hai, wo e five pillars of success joa Krishna Jinan has bataya hai. It's all about defining the place of action, the performer, the various senses, endeavors, and then you leave it to me. That's what is important. Translated into modern language... It would be you have to build a platform. You have to create the build a team of individuals who are qualified to fight. Then you have to develop the means and tools, which is the various senses. And then you have to make the effort. Falki chinta mat karo, leave it to me. That's the true meaning of the whole thing. We have forgotten that at individual and collective levels. We are all become ke Kekhilari. Always playing I, I will never forget this. Kerala is telling me, let the Kashmir go. You know, what's the problem? Let it go. I said, yeah, I would rather give you, I would rather give Kerala away than Kashmir. <laughs> so that at that I least I can protect from the Navy side. <laughs> so of course it was said so I didn't mean to say that Kerala should be sent out or bargained deal But it is very important for us. Is to begin to assert ourselves. Time has come. We are surrounded. Think about it. We make fun of puncture wallahs, but have we ever thought about it? sabzi phal We are getting surrounded by functionality and jobs. We are facing an existential threat if we don't arise. So I'm, I'm totally with the, the fact that it's time to get into the action mode. Let's read, let's understand, let's collaborate, cooperate, and mobilize. If we don't do that, we have a suffering to face in the future. As somebody said, Sanatan will survive. I said, yes, it will. But where? <laughs> That's the key question. Where will Sanatan survive? When we have Vijians, Jagans, and all are out to destroy that. In the name of all our Hindu names, and we are letting our talent go. We are we are we are facing a very uncertain time, but science and technology is with us, and the world is looking at us. It's for us to take that message forward. People like you, Sruchir, wherever you are in policy making or whatever, yes, we have to bring in that element of Sanatan, part of it it is relevant to the world
0: and we have to do that yes indeed you're quite right and on that note uh, we move to the questions and answers Uh, just uh, requesting once again please uh, do share and like this video press the bell icon